This is episode number 22 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the bi-weekly program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective because, unfortunately, well, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him because the liberal mainstream media has lost their minds. They can no longer be objective if they ever could be. And the conservative, as I refer to them now, state-run media has been compromised and completely co-opted. We, however, at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's individual, the number one pod. Today is Wednesday morning in Los Angeles, uh, West Coast time in the United States of America. And tomorrow at about this time, it is expected that the Mueller report will finally be made public, probably a little bit before this time, less than 24 hours from now. Partially because of that and partially because of Sunday being Easter Sunday, uh, we will be doing episode number 23 of the individual podcast a little bit early. We usually do it on Sunday mornings, Los Angeles time, but instead we'll be doing it on Saturday, one, because of Easter, two, because uh, by that point uh, the Mueller report will have been largely absorbed, although the reality is, and I think this is becoming more and more obvious, and the conventional wisdom, which I'm always suspicious of, my sense is probably going to be right in this case. And the conventional wisdom currently about the rollout of the uh, the Mueller report is that the redactions are going to be the headline and that that's why this has taken so long. Because, folks, let's just look at this in the simplest possible way. And that is that if you have a uh, almost 400-page document that's been uh, two years in the making and it exonerates the guy you work for, if you're Bill Barr, the Attorney General of the United States, and it exonerates the guy you're working for, uh, this is very easy. You want this out quickly, and you want as much information out as possible. Now, I get the idea of protecting national security and intelligence secrets, what have you, with uh, some minor redactions. But that's not that difficult. It's not rocket science. And it has been three weeks now. Three weeks, which is an exceedingly long period of time in this era. It's not that difficult. And what was really the clincher for me that... The timing of all this is very contrived were two things about what we learned this week. Number one is that on Monday, the Department of Justice announced that it would be Thursday when the Mueller report would be released. Well, what does that tell you? (laughs) Just again, looking at this in the most logical, sensible way possible. Three days is, again, a long period of time in this day and age. How do they know for sure if the work wasn't completed on Monday? In which case, if it was completed, why not release it? How do they know for sure on Monday that they're going to be able to get it done by Thursday with with that much confidence that they're willing to announce it to the world? (laughs) I would suggest to you that the explanation for that is that Thursday has always been the date that they were going to release it. Why Thursday? Well, Thursday is the day before a long, major holiday. You got Good Friday on Friday, Easter Sunday on Sunday. Uh, It was Barr who uh, immediately said uh, when the Mueller report was first submitted that it would probably be sometime in mid-April before uh, this would be released. They looked at their calendar and they said, "Okay, how long can we get away with pretending that we're obsessing over redactions? And what would be the best time strategically to release this? Now, do I know that for sure? Obviously not. But logically, that makes the most sense. It's either that or an amazing coincidence that they take three weeks for the redactions of this, which, again, is way too long based upon what we currently know and the level of importance of the document and the amount of attention and interest there is in it. So three weeks just doesn't make any sense. Unless, of course, you're strategically trying to hit a point where two things happen. As much time as possible has elapsed 
so that one, your initial narrative that you created in that four-page summary can be set in stone, and two, people will start to psychologically move on. We have incredibly short attention spans in this country. I mean, scarily so. Getting worse every day, something that Donald Trump both facilitates and takes advantage of on a daily basis. I think part of the reason why Donald Trump is a media genius is because his attention span is just as short as the media's, maybe even shorter. And so this three-week span has been, while the approval ratings have not helped at all, in fact, they're exactly where they were before the bar summary, if not even maybe a little bit worse, depending on which poll you prefer. The reality is that this three-week waiting period has been very helpful because what's going to happen tomorrow is this. The news media is going to once again get all hot and bothered, create all sorts of anticipation, and the report's going to come out, and we're not going to learn hardly anything new. Let's face it, unless it's new and explosive at this point, it's not going to make a damn bit of difference. And so releasing an almost 400-page report, having the media then fall all over themselves, desperately searching for something, anything that's both new and damaging to Trump to show that the bar summary was illegitimate is going to be comical. I think there's a decent chance it's going to look a lot like the infamous uh, Geraldo Rivera attempt to open Al Capone's vault. They're going to all be humiliated on, on live television because, again, I, can't, I cannot emphasize enough how difficult it will be for people to go over a complicated 400-page document in real time while they're desperate to find something to, to hang their hat on for a new headline. When the person making the redactions is the same person that created the summary to begin with. So, of course, he's not going to allow anything in the actual document, assuming that the redactions are as prevalent as is now being presumed. I mean, otherwise, what's the reason for the three-week delay? So you got to look at this logically. There has to be a reason for the three-week delay. That means there's got to be a lot of redactions. Well, if there's a lot of redactions, that means Barr is being exceedingly liberal on what he's deciding should be redacted. And he's not going to leave something in there that it completely contradicts the narrative created by his summary. And let's be clear about how incredibly easy this is. Because, I mean, you could have, you know, I'm thinking obviously theoretically here, you could have Mueller building a case for several paragraphs or maybe several pages, and if you just exercise the one key line, or maybe even a couple of words, like, for instance, Trump's name, then it completely obliterates its value. So this is incredibly easy, especially when you have three weeks. And to me, it is almost laughable. And I wrote a column about this today for Mediate, which I urge you to check out either on my Twitter feed or on the Individual One Podcast Twitter feed, or you can just Google it, about how it is that Bill Barr's uh, rollout of the Mueller report is both clearly, unless we're really missing something, and I'm op always open-minded to that, is clearly very contrived, very political, but also brilliant. Brilliant from the standpoint of protecting his president politically. And it is laughable to me that this point of view is not more pervasive, especially even in the anti-Trump media. I mean, Barr has absolutely no reason to be given any benefit of the doubt. The way he was hired, the way that he, he proactively uh, essentially campaigned for the job by trashing Mueller and saying the president could not be charged with obstruction of justice, the way that his predecessor, Jeff Sessions, was crapped on for having recused himself in the Russian investigation and, uh, and then fired for no specific reason the day after the midterm election. And then this goon, Matt Whitaker, is put in to the AG spot temporarily, completely unqualified to hold it until they were able to get Bill Barr passed through the Senate and confirmed just in time, just in time, weeks, just a few weeks before Mueller finishes his investigation. Bill Barr, a guy whose own sudden law works directly for Donald Trump, he ends up being in charge of the Mueller investigation as Attorney General of the United States. And by the way, we just learned this week, I didn't know this, there was 
uh, in fact, I just learned it yesterday, although I mentioned it in the column that I wrote, that 30 years ago when Bill Barr was attorney general the first time, he did something almost exactly to what he's now being accused of by the skeptics and the cynics regarding misrepresenting a government memo to the public. So this guy is, is shown he's capable of doing what it certainly looks like he might be doing here. And I want to also be something to be very clear here, because I understand, it, especially on this subject, everything gets seen through the prism of are you pro-Trump or you're anti-Trump? And if you're seen as anti-Trump, that means you believe in some sort of massive uh, collusion, conspiracy and Manchurian candidate theory. That's not where I am. I don't think we're going to find, certainly not tomorrow with the redactions, we're going to find that, in fact, Barr was lying about whether or not Mueller came to a conclusion on Trump and collusion. In other words, I don't think that we're going to find out that Mueller actually did believe that there was a conspiracy with Russia and that Barr just lied about that. I would That would truly be shocking. And I and frankly, you it's know, just flat out ridiculous. I, I don't think that there's, that's even in the realm of possibility. Even in a world where Tiger Woods is the current Masters champion, that's not in the realm of possibility. I mean, we're going to live in a world where almost anything is possible. That, to me, is not in the realm of logical possibilities. I'm focused more on the realm of obstruction, of justice. However, I do believe we're going to find that there was evidence of collusion, that it just didn't reach the point of being beyond a reasonable doubt, being indictable, being enough to confirm without direct evidence. And I've always said, finding direct evidence of Donald Trump's knowledge or participation in collusion with Russia was always going to be nearly impossible. Because first of all, he doesn't do email. (laughs) He doesn't do email. Everyone around him is incredibly loyal. He's the president of the United States. No one's going to turn on him with the evidence contrary to this. And it was clear once you know, the, the recommendation came out for, for General Mike Flynn to not even go to jail, and uh, Paul Manafort's sentencing was pretty darn light, and Michael Cohen uh, had nothing to do with collusion. You know, when you talk about your personal lawyer, your campaign chairman, and your national security advisor, all of whom were wrapped up in this, and none of them were charged or sentenced remotely consistent with the idea that they uh, that there had been a conspiracy with Russia and that they had turned on Trump, well, my my thought and Michael Isakoff, who I interviewed and Trump ended up tweeting about it three times because he liked what we said, you know, Michael Isakoff, who wrote the book Russian Roulette, co-wrote that book. We're like, okay, well, who else could there be to have facilitated this conspiracy with Russia? There's nobody left. So at a certain point. It either didn't happen or there's no way to prove it. I'm curious as to which is more likely, but it doesn't matter, really, because there's there's I've always felt like there was a gray area in the middle there. I've likened it, as I did with Isakoff, to an attempted romantic relationship that the Trump people wanted to hook up with the Russians. The Russians thought about it. There was some flirtation that was inappropriate. But in reality, Nothing actually happened, maybe because the Russians were afraid of getting an STD from the Trump people. And I have have concluded and I've said many, many times that the real essence of this whole thing was the Trump Tower Moscow project, that hiding that and Trump's lies about it throughout the entire campaign is, in, in my estimation, the most logical way of looking at this is that was the core issue. That was the core issue. That's why all the lying. That's why all the insecurity. That Trump was using the Republican nomination for president of the United States in 2016 to try to facilitate a massive land deal in Moscow for a Trump Tower with the Russian government, possibly even using a bribe of the penthouse to Vladimir Putin. Now, that is a scandal. (laughs) In a rational world, that's a game ender. In a rational world, the Republican Party completely revolts going, what? You used our presidential nomination to try to facilitate a land deal with with an adversarial foreign power and you lied about it constantly? In a rational world, that's the kind of stuff, those kind of... 
would be a game ender. We don't live in that world because this is a cult. This is everyone being invested in a myth. This is people who believe anything that that doesn't fit with their uh, predetermined views of Donald Trump must be fake news. I love the poorly educated. So, so we're not living in a rational world here. But to me, that's what I'm most interested in, in the Mueller report. Getting to the bottom of this Trump-Moscow project. Because my sense is that Trump actually underestimated his own cult. Underestimated what he could get away with. That he, even he thought, wait a minute, I, I, this is going to be terrible if they find out I was trying to do this Trump-Moscow project throughout the entire campaign. And I was lying about it. But once you're president, everything changes. Possession is 90, 95% of the law, as the old adage says. Well, with the presidency, it's about 99.9% because now no one has an incentive to turn on you, especially when you killed the wicked witch of the West, Hillary Clinton. So therefore, the ends justify the means. It doesn't matter what the means were, even though Trump's laughing at his own cult all the way. So... Barr, getting back to Barr here, Barr to me has lost all benefit of the doubt. He did so further when he testified laughably last week that, uh, that the, the issue of the Obama administration spying on the Trump campaign was legitimate, although perhaps not illegal. I mean, that was, that was I mean, come on, Charles Barkley. It's just flat out ridiculous. All that was was him feeding right-wing state-run media talking points, effectively tipping his cap to the cult. That's what he was doing. There's no basis for that. There's no logic for it. By the way, here's all you need to know. First, not only is it crazy and ridiculous, but all you need to know, and this goes for so many of the back-crap crazy 2016 uh, election conspiracy theories, specifically with regard to the Steele dossier, but it also goes to the Trump administration and the intelligence agencies, quote unquote, spying on the Trump campaign. If that was happening, how come we never got any of that information publicly during the campaign? Come on, people. Use your brains. Oh, I realize. Oh, yeah, they knew he was going to lose. No, they did not, especially the last couple of weeks of the campaign after those intelligence agencies actually came down on the side against Hillary Clinton by reopening the email investigation needlessly 10 days before the election. Can we please not forget that? That's a thing that actually happened. That's a thing that was critical and who ended up winning that election. And it completely blows up any of these bullcrap conspiracy theories. It's all bullcrap. And Bill Barr bought into that. I don't, I don't think he really believes it, having watched his answer. But he's a political operative. He's a hack. He's doing the bidding for his president. He's acting, it appears, it appears he's acting as if he's the president's personal attorney rather than the attorney general. But again, I don't believe that his summary was a flat-out lie. I think he shaded it, and I think he used purposely vague language in a way that makes it impossible for anyone, including Robert Mueller, to discredit. And even then, there were members of Mueller's team that pushed back in the news media, in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, and on NBC. So clearly, when we find out everything that's in the report, there's going to be some very damaging stuff there about President Trump, probably in the realm of obstruction of justice, which I believe he absolutely committed in a way that should be impeachable. But we're not going to find out that in all likelihood tomorrow. At least it's not going to be confirmed tomorrow. So then what's going to happen? Then there's going to be further delay. Potentially far, far more than the delay between Mueller submitting his report and the the redacted version being made public. Well, delay is the best tactic that you have when you're guilty of something. We see this all the time, especially in this kind of case where the calendar is so important. To me, what Barr is doing is very consistent with running out the clock, taking the air out of the ball, making sure that the opponents of Donald Trump, who continue to scream and yell for the full report, are going to look desperate. They're going to look out of touch. They're going to look crazed. 
They're going to, you know, the, going back to the Al Capone's vault situation. You know, if the vault's empty, they're going to, you know, we want to look deeper into the vault. Uh, and, and Trump will ridicule them. He'll, he'll accuse them of threatening our national security by wanting sensitive government secrets re- unredacted from the report, which, of course, will be bullcrap. But that's what that's what will happen. Trump will win this, especially now as people get tired. Let's face it. People are already exhausted by this two-year process. They, um, the Mueller uh, report summary by Barr clearly decapitated people's expectations for what could be in this report, and therefore they lose interest. They're already exhausted. They're tired. This will be going on too far, and we're now heading into the 2020 election cycle. So delay is inherently good for Trump. Barr clearly understands this. And frankly, the only thing that makes me hesitate about this theory about what's really motivating Barr is that it presumes him to be very competent. And I tend to not believe anyone's competent. But I do believe that people in general, especially people in power, are more than capable of being deceitful and fooling themselves and relying on people thinking that they are more virtuous than they really are and giving them the benefit of the doubt. And I've had people I respect, in fact, on this program, Matt Lewis, who's a great guy, good friend, columnist for the Daily Beast, commentator for CNN. I thought he was incredibly naive saying that, well, Barr is to be trusted on this kind of thing. Really? Wow. That that to me takes uh, the Easter Bunny is real level naivete. Again, I'm not suggesting we're going to find out that the whole thing was a big scam. My sense is that Mueller just couldn't prove the case, with, certainly with regard to collusion. And I'm really curious as to what his rationale was, and which we're never going to find out until Mueller testifies, which will be way too late in all likelihood for this to have any real impact. Maybe it'll impact the 2020 election, but it's certainly not going to. At this point, I think we're probably too late for impeachment. Even if tomorrow produced enough uh, of a bombshell for Democrats to finally say, OK, this is the time we need to to start impeachment proceedings. Because the number one mistake Democrats have made, and I understand why they did it. It makes it made sense, but it played into Trump's hands. They got outwitted either by dumb luck or because Trump is actually far more intelligent strategically than anyone wants to give him credit for. But they kept waiting and waiting and waiting because they want the full story before they go to war. I get wanting to have all the facts, but we're not going to get all the facts even now. Even tomorrow, we're not going to get all the facts. It's going to be months, maybe longer. And by that point, it's way too late to start impeachment proceedings going into a re-election campaign. And so tomorrow, I actually think we're gonna, it's going to be another... Um, Lucy and Charlie Brown with the football scenario, where the media is going to once again be fooled into thinking, all right, now we're going to finally get to the bottom of this. And then, whoops, the football gets pulled away right at the moment when they're going to kick it because Bill Barr has redacted enough key elements of it to where you can't get a clear shot. Now, maybe there'll be some things that'll be interesting and new, but there's not going to be anything that's enormously uh, explosive, partially because we already know so much. That's the part of the timing. Timing is everything in life. Expectations and timing are virtually everything in life. And if, and I've seen other people, John Olive funny bit about this on HBO, which is 100% true. If we, on one day, let's say it was early on in the, in the Trump administration, if in one day we had learned Everything we currently know about the Russia saga slash scandal and Trump's involvement in it and his attempts to obstruct justice and all the convictions and and guilty pleas by people around him. If all this came down in one or two days, I really do believe that Trump would would have been impeached and maybe, maybe even removed from office. I really believe that. But because it has drip, 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 dripped out over an extended period of time, because Trump has consolidated power, because he has placated his base 
because his cult is stronger than ever, because the Republican Party is totally invested in him, and because Democrats were too late in deciding to go to war over this, i.e. starting impeachment proceedings, it all worked into his favor. So timing and expectations are everything. And that's my prediction for for what we're going to see tomorrow. And I will have a further analysis of once we've actually seen some of the report uh, on Saturday, which will be when we'll do episode number 23 of the Individual One podcast. But the bottom line here is Trump's going to win. Trump's going to win this battle. We're just arguing over what the final score is, in my estimation. Now, there's several other news items that have happened since uh, our last episode of the Individual One podcast that I want to reference. One of them deals with the tragedy at the uh, Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris, France. And uh, this, like almost everything that happens, has a a, a Trump connection, and it is bizarre. Uh, But it's worthy of mention. Now, I'm I'm one who often, despite the fact that I'm a Trump critic, I try hard to give Trump the benefit of the doubt on most of his public statements that maybe they're being misinterpreted, maybe he's joking, maybe they're not really that big of a deal. But this one is just too too ridiculous to uh, resist. And this was that uh, when the cathedral at Notre Dame was on fire and all the networks were carrying it live and this tragedy was happening in real time across the world, our fearless president went to Twitter and like Batman, he tweeted the following. I think he might I might I think he really believes he's Batman or at least Bruce Wayne. It is so horrible to watch the massive fire. Perhaps flying water tankers could be used to put it out. Must act quickly. Exclamation point. <laughs> now if Even if you're just some random dude in a bar and you're watching this on television and you decide to tweet that out, that's pretty stupid. Unless you have some sort of expertise in fighting a fire like this, which is obviously incredibly unique to begin with, it's best to shut the hell up when you have no idea what you're talking about. But when you are president of the United States and whatever you say is going to be seen across the world, Forget about your millions of followers on Twitter. But to every country in the world, every media outlet, this is the biggest story of the day, probably the week, maybe longer than that. Maybe, just maybe you think, hmm, even if I thought that, even if I thought that I had a really good suggestion about using flying water tankers, that maybe I check with somebody, because I'm president of the United States, it's not like I don't have the resources to call somebody who might know what the hell they're talking about and say, hey, why don't they use flying water tankers? Because I'm pretty sure there'd be a fire expert somewhere that would take President Trump's call. But does he do that? No. He just decides to fly off the handle and expose his moronic nature to the entire world adding must act quickly exclamation point now when i saw that i thought this can't be real this cannot be real we you as john macaro said you cannot be serious that the president of the united states is talking about something he knows nothing about and of course the problem with trump is he probably believes that his opinion regardless of how ignorant it is has inherent value because it's Donald Trump, and he's the president, and he has very high intelligence. He'll tell you that. And he uses only the best words. <laughs> so, And he's very highly educated, even though... I love the poorly educated. <laughs> so you got to love the French. You know, my opinion of the French has, has gotten so much better over the last few years. And I, my sense is, you know, when I grew up, uh, and I'm 52 years old, the, the, the stereotype about the French... All came from World War II, right? Because, you know, they folded in front of the Nazis and they're a bunch of uh, wimps and cowards. And, you know, they're, all they're doing is drinking wine and and, uh, and hanging out and living off the freedom given them by everybody else. That was the perception that I had. I've never been to France, by the way. I've been to Europe many times or several times, but never been to France. 
but my perception of the French has changed dramatically. And maybe it's because they, they uh, have remained much the same while everyone else has gotten way too wussified. That's my perception. In other words, the rest of the world has gotten super PC while the French have basically stayed the same. And the French are not PC <laughs> for, for, by, for by and large. I'm sure there's elements of PC in France. But uh, Security Civil, the defense uh, agency run by the French government, actually tweeted a response to Donald Trump. And it was beautiful. They wrote in English, quote, hundreds of firemen of the Paris Fire Brigade are doing everything they can to bring the terrible Notre Dame fire under control. All means are being used except for water bombing aircrafts, which, if used, could lead to the collapse of the entire structure of the cathedral. <laughs> In other words, reading between the lines, shut the fuck up, you moron. We know what we're doing. <laughs> But if Trump was in charge, see, and this is to be serious for a moment. I mean, this is funny, but there's a serious element of this. And this has been always my greatest fear about the Trump presidency, especially about a Trump reelection. We have been incredibly lucky that somehow, some way, we've gotten through the first two and a half years of this without a major national crisis, whether it's a terrorist attack or uh, a, a super duper natural disaster, uh, or um, you know, a, a war, or or a financial crisis. We've had nothing of the, of a huge nature where we had to the look to Trump for guidance. I cannot believe if he's reelected, which I'm beginning to think is more than likely. If he's reelected, that statistically the chances of us getting through eight years without a significant crisis is, is almost infinitesimal. I mean, we can't possibly get that lucky. And that's what frightens me, because this is the kind of guy you don't want in charge, especially of the, the, the strongest military that man has ever created, in the middle of a crisis. Because this is a guy who has no discipline, has no concept of what he knows and what he doesn't know, and who's willing to fly off the handle with public statements that are completely idiotic. And in the middle of a crisis, that's dangerous. That goes from being funny to dangerous. Thankfully, Trump was not in charge of fighting the fire at Notre Dame. But if something happens here of a similar nature, he might be. And that's where things get out of the realm of humor and into the realm of real danger. So uh, that's, that was my thought on the Notre Dame thing. Thankfully, it appears, well, horrendous and a tragedy, that the, the damage done there was not as bad as was initially thought, although still uh, catastrophic. Um, but uh, And obviously just a horrible, horrible day for the world. I, I have to say, I'm one of the fiercest media critics that there, there is out there. Most of the media coverage of the Notre Dame tragedy has been exceedingly good really good. I, I was stunned by uh, how well that story has been handled uh, to date. In fact, if anything, they may have gone a little bit overboard. Like Chris Cuomo on CNN, my gosh, uh, that, was a, that was a bit nuts. But he's a Catholic, and I, he was very emotionally involved in the story. I grew up Catholic. I now refer to myself as a recovering Catholic. Um, and my, my biggest concern about it, not from Obviously, it was horrible from the from the standpoint of the cathedral. But I was curious what my six year old daughter Grace was going to think because you know she's she's watched the movie The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, interestingly, she wasn't that interested. I I, I was kind of surprised by that. I am the leader. Do as I say. But anyway, hopefully that will that the current conventional wisdom on the fire Notre Dame that it was not quite as bad as it could have been will end up uh, holding. Uh, another thing that Trump did this week that I want to mention, because this comes very close to home, is that after Tiger Woods won the Masters in shocking fashion, he tweeted that he's going to give Tiger Woods the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Now, 
If you look up uh, being conflicted in the dictionary, uh, this story would be a pretty darn good description. Because uh, for those who know me, all you got to do is Google me and uh, Tiger Woods. I have an exceedingly long 25-year history with the Tiger Woods story at every level of it. I I used to be Tiger Woods' biggest fan. I had a worldwide known website called TigerWoodsIsGod.com. Uh, I was way out ahead of the Tiger Mania back in 1996. I created the first Church of Tiger Woods, a radio station in Nashville, Tennessee, which was a brilliant idea. <laughs> Nashville, Tennessee is the belt buckle of the Bible belt of the United States of America. And here I was saying on-air prayers as a new uh, broadcaster in Nashville no one knew anything about, saying prayers to an African-American uh, golfer. Uh, that that was not a great idea from a from a marketing <laughs> or ratings perspective, but it, it, that led to the first Church of Tiger Woods. Uh, I was his biggest fan. I admired him greatly. His his golf was one of the more enjoyable elements of my life. Got me through a lot of very di- difficult and dark times. And then the the scandal happened, and I completely flipped on him. I, I, I became one of his harshest critics. I actually even heckled him at the 2010 U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, which was written about on the back page of Sports Illustrated. Thankfully, not with my name involved because I didn't even take my ID because it was two weeks before my wedding, and I knew my wife wouldn't appreciate that because I knew what my plan was. Uh, and now uh, that he has suffered enough and made the most amazing comeback in the history of sport, in my opinion— and it might not even be close. There are people who are arguing with that, but I disagree with that. I, I think this is the most amazing personal comeback uh, of someone of that stature in the history of sports, at least the modern history of sports. I am now rooting for him again because I do believe in, in redemption and forgiveness and recovery, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm a big admirer of people who overcome adversity. And there's no question that Tiger Woods has done that. So, by the way, interestingly, this is bizarre. This is so typical of my strange life. There was a column written in New Zealand after Tiger Woods won the Masters on Sunday, which mentioned me and my connection to both the pro-Tiger Woods website and having heckled him at the 2010 U.S. Open. And what was fascinating about this to me was, one, why New Zealand? But two... No one in the media has ever connected those two things. Both got written about one more than the other, the the website more than the heckling, but both got written about all over the world. No media outlet has ever, ever connected those two things, except for some columnist in New Zealand who I've never heard of, who's never gotten in contact with me. So that was shocking. I have no idea how that happened. Uh, but it's an indication that maybe the media in New Zealand's a lot more competent than they are here in the United States, but that wouldn't be saying much. Anyway, with that backdrop, when Trump tweeted that he was going to give Tiger Woods the Presidential Medal of Freedom, I was a, a bit uh, perturbed. And the reason I was perturbed was, one, because it's too early, okay? <laughs> Tiger Woods is 43 years old. He's just a few years out of a, a massive personal scandal. And uh, and the reason why you don't give, there's a reason why Presidential Medal of Freedom winners usually get honored in their 60s, 70s, or 80s. Because at that point, it's very difficult to get yourself in a lot of trouble, <laughs> right? Your testosterone levels are way down. If you're a guy, uh, you know, you, you've lived most of your life. You're, you're, you're not taking a lot of chances, and so you're not going to do anything that's going to besmirch the honor. And the, and the Presidential Medal of Freedom is the highest civilian honor we have in this country. Now, to be fair to Donald Trump, Barack Obama, when he was president, took the standard for the Presidential Medal of Freedom and diminished it greatly. He started giving it out to all sorts of Hollywood people that had no real right to it. And it was clearly just a, a photo op and a way for him to ingratiate himself with Hollywood. And that was wrong. And by the way, conservatives didn't like it. But my bigger problem with, with, with Tiger Woods getting the Presidential Medal of Freedom, allegedly, at least, you know, that's what Trump's stating publicly. That doesn't mean it's actually going to happen. 
part of me hopes maybe Tiger would decline, but I think that's highly unlikely because it would put him in an impossible situation. But the point is that the bigger problem, it's not just that Tiger Woods is too young and just coming off a scandal and, and you're giving him the award for, as Trump said, making a great comeback in life. Well, what does that mean? So in other words, if, if he hadn't cheated on his wife horrendously and gotten a divorce, would he then not be eligible for the Presidential Medal of Freedom? Because <laughs> that's what it sounds like you're saying. I realize that he came back for more than just the, the scandal uh, and divorce, but that was a big part of it. So if that wasn't part of the equation, he doesn't get the award, that's a problem. But my biggest problem deals with Donald Trump's conflict of interest here. And this is where Trump benefits from having desensitized us all with regard to what is now viewed as scandalous. I am well aware very few Americans will be outraged by him giving Tiger Woods an award, especially when Tiger Woods is now at an all-time high of popularity, especially considering where he was back in uh, late 2009 when the scandal broke. So I, I get that very few people are going to agree with me, but there's a problem here. And, and Trump's conflict of interest with regard to the golf industry should matter because Donald Trump his by far by far his most prominent economic interest is in the golf industry well who's the biggest name and will be the biggest name and the biggest influencer for the rest of his life in the golf industry other than Tiger Woods so that's an inherent financial economic conflict of interest not to mention you know just not just the entire golf industry which i'm a golfer i'm in favor of anything that's good for golf because golf is in big trouble so this isn't even a self-interest thing i'm looking at this from the perspective of the sanctity of what's left of the sanctity of the office of the presidency and I'm a big believer that conflicts of interest are very dangerous. And the fact that no one cares about them anymore is even more troubling. Well, this is a perfect example of no one caring about them. Not only does Trump benefit by elevating the golf industry, by honoring Tiger Woods way prematurely, who's to say that he and Tiger aren't going to do business together on his golf courses after he's done in office? Hell, if he's reelected, he might even do it while he's in office. He doesn't seem to give a damn about any of the normal rules or standards of the emoluments clause of the Constitution or anything like that. So while it's not the most important thing by far, and I get that people aren't going to see it this way, the reality is it's too early for Tiger Woods to be getting this award. I think he eventually should and could deserve it. But that Donald Trump is the wrong person to be giving it to him, the wrong president, because of the conflict of interest issue. And speaking of the conflict of interest issue, there's another news story that's probably more significant, although it might not get as much media coverage because it's an issue that's too complicated for Americans to care about or understand. Donald Trump issued his second veto this week. Uh, this is a story from the BBC. Uh, U.S. President Donald Trump has vetoed a bill passed by Congress to end support for the Saudi-led war in Yemen. Mr. Trump described the resolution as an unnecessary and dangerous attempt to weaken his constitutional powers. Well, that's ironic for a guy who's abusing his power on a regular basis, but I digress. It is only the second time Mr. Trump has used his presidential veto since he took office in 2017. Opposition in Congress to his policy on Yemen grew last year after Saudi agents killed the journalist Jamal Khashoggi at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. The resolution passed the House of Representatives in April and the Senate in March, the first time both chambers had supported a war powers resolution which limits the president's ability to send troops into action. Trump said, quote, This resolution is an unnecessary, dangerous attempt to weaken my constitutional authorities, endangering the lives of American citizens and brave service members both today and in the future. I am somebody who uh, is very much aware of what I know and what I don't know. I am not an expert on this war in Yemen. I have no clue as to what the right thing is, whether the Saudis are right or wrong, whether it's the right thing or the wrong thing for us to be supporting them. No idea. No clue. Most likely, neither do you. Most likely, neither does anybody in the news media, uh, or hardly anybody in the news media discussing this. Here's the problem, though. 
there's already a massive issue of trust with regard to Donald Trump. This is what happens when you lie constantly, when you're a pathological liar, even when you do it just for sport, when things actually matter, there's no reason to trust what you're saying. Number two, because of Donald Trump's massive conflict of interest with regard to the Saudis, some of that being economic, some of that uh, being relationship oriented. I mean, my gosh, it's a, it's, I'm sure just coincidental, but it's incredibly ironic and telling to me that, you know, the name Khashoggi is important here because Donald Trump purchased his yacht back in the late 1980s, something my father played a key role in. The Trump princess, that yacht was purchased from a Saudi Arabian arms dealer, notorious Saudi Arabian arms dealer, who was Khashoggi's uncle. Now, I realize that Saudi Arabian family trees uh, are, are rather complicated, but it's the same name and it's the same family, and he's clearly an uncle. And then when he f- sold the, the, the Trump princess because he couldn't afford it, he sold it, sold it to another Saudi. I mean, his ties with the Saudis are longer and deeper, at least from what we know for sure in the public record, than they are with the Russians. And so how do we know that this decision is being made in the best interest of the American people, the American soldiers, and our national security interests? We don't. And there's no way for us to know because Trump has removed any semblance of trust in this issue. He is more than capable of making such a decision based upon his own personal self-interest. I have no idea if he's doing that here or not, but I do not trust him that he's making the decision based upon the right set of criteria, especially when he's going against Republicans in Congress. This was passed by a Republican Senate with Republican votes. And so his two vetoes, his two, let's take a look at what his two vetoes are in his first two and a half years in office. The first one was to override Republicans, 12 of which voted against him in the U.S. Senate, to protect his emergency declaration on the border. Not about, you know, a policy difference. This was about his own personal power and the fact that Congress was saying he was abusing it by issuing an emergency declaration on the border. So that was all about him. Veto number one was all about him and his own power. Veto number two is in a situation where he has a huge personal conflict of interest. And until proven otherwise, it is it would be negligent not to be cynical and suspicious of Trump's motivations here. And that's a problem. Even if the decision was correct, that lack of trust is corrosive. Now, I oftentimes take a look at the news media coverage on the left uh, when it's wrong about uh, issues related to Trump and when they're playing into Trump's hands. And I want to do that before we end this edition of the podcast, because something happened today that, that really pissed me off and I think plays right into Donald Trump's hands. And, and this is going to sound somewhat uh, you know, insignificant in the grand scheme of things. But Time Magazine, which used to matter, is out with its top 100 most influential list. And it's hardly new that to get on this list, it helps you to be liberal rather than conservative. That's not new. All right. There's nothing earth shattering about that. That's that's pretty clear. Right. But what what happened in this particular year's list, I thought was even more dramatic, more egregious, more obvious that basically how woke you are uh, determined about 80% of the list. But there was one uh, person on the list that really, really upset me and, uh, and, and I think goes to how discredited the liberal media is in the minds of average Americans. They actually put on that list under the icon category. They described as an icon one of the, most, one, the 100 most influential people in the world. Christine Blasey Ford. Christine Blasey Ford. Do you remember who that is? Christine Blasey Ford is the woman who made the very last second sexual abuse allegation against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh of of an episode that occurred allegedly while they were in high school 30-some years prior 
which she had never spoken about previously publicly, had never told anyone about until she told her therapist just a few years ago, had zero corroboration for, zero, including the people she alleges were at the party where this happened. No corroboration at all. And to me, most tellingly, could not even remember how, in any way, shape, or form, she got home from that event. That, to me, is the Perry Mason moment in that whole deal, which gets very misunderstood. People keep saying to me all the time when I bring that up, well, uh, what difference does it make? Uh, you know, she, how could she remember you know, whether she uh, took a car or a cab or who drove her home? That's not the issue. Because I know the geography of that area, having gone to school at Georgetown University, it, it was an incredibly long trip from where she says this happened to her home. She was not able to drive. She didn't have a driver's license. She had no one to drive her home. That would have been just as traumatic and taken a longer period of time and therefore be more, even at least as memorable, if not more so, than the actual alleged assault, which didn't even involve nudity or sexual contact. So... The idea that she has no memory of that at all, to me, has always said, okay, here's what happened. She found this memory in therapy. And the reason why she can't remember she, how she got home is because the memory's not real. The, the memory didn't happen. That's why no one at the party can remember anything about it or was willing to corroborate her in any way, shape, or form. So the bottom line is, this story is a fantasy. This story is a has no validity and was found not to be valid by a, a secondary FBI investigation. And Kavanaugh was confirmed, barely, to the U.S. Supreme Court. And here it is almost a year later, almost a year later, and Time Magazine is declaring her to be an icon, one of the top 100 most influential people in the world? Which, of course, blows apart one of the basic premises of why we were supposed to believe her in the first place. And this I called bullcrap on when it happened, but I can't tell you how many times I saw this. This was the argument for why she was to be believed. There's no reason for her to come forward. Why would she possibly put herself through this unless she was telling the truth? Well, there was the issue of that she's a liberal and that she would be destroying a conservative taking the Supreme Court. There's that. But there's also the issue of there are benefits if you're on the right side of a debate like this. If you're on the side of the media and the liberal elite, there are benefits. And being named on a list like this has enormous value, especially when you're in academia, which she is in. Effectively, this is, this is the, the uh, ultimate job security Situation. Not to mention she's going to be asked, and I'm sure already has been asked, to, to speak for thousands and thousands of dollars all over the country. And they'll pretend it's over some other issue, but she's a celebrity now. That has value. Being on this list, being embraced by the liberal elite, all has value. So don't tell me there was nothing in it for her or she didn't benefit from it in some way, shape, or form. She clearly did. But the more important thing with regard to Trump is that this plays right into Trump's narrative of how the news media is out of control, they're not to be trusted, they're engaging in fake news. Because I believe Christine Blasey Ford is fake news. I don't think she made it up on purpose. I think she is deluded by therapy. And that's why therapy was the place where she first supposedly remembered this many, 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 many years after it supposedly happened. And so Time Magazine is playing right into what Trump wants people to believe about the news media, and therefore not to believe anything negative about him. And I keep saying it, the de Democrats on the presidential campaign are doing exactly the same thing. They're all going to play right into Trump's hands. The media's obsession with Mayor Pete from South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg. Now, now here's an interesting thing. I, I, I mentioned that my daughter was not that... Uh, captivated by the fire at Notre Dame, even though she liked the movie The Hunchback of Notre Dame. That surprised me. But this even surprised me further. So, you know, Grace Ziegler, who's now almost seven years old, 
Uh, she, you know, this was her back when she was three or four. Is Trump a bad guy or a good guy? Okay. And so it's it's interesting to see what comes from the mouth of, well, she's not quite a babe anymore, but, uh, you know, she's still young, not even seven, about to turn seven in about a month. So somehow, I don't even know how this happened, the subject of Pete Buttigieg came up because I think she heard the name on CNN. I was watching CNN, ironically watching the, the Notre, Dame, uh, Notre Dame fire uh, coverage, and they were promoting a, a town hall coming up with Pete Buttigieg. And... Uh, and somehow she latched on, and she knows obviously nothing about the fact that Buddha Judge is gay or what being gay even means. She knows nothing. And she voluntarily started laughing at his last name and saying, his last name starts with butt? Ha, 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 ha. Like, completely unprovoked. Now, this is the level unfortunately, of our discourse. We're basically, you know, maybe maybe at a nine-year-old level of discourse. And this is why Trump understands how to manipulate his base and the media, because he's basically at a nine-year-old level of discourse. And I keep saying that Mayor Pete of South Bend has a lot of great qualities. He seems really smart. He seems engaging, down to earth. I like the way he speaks. He's young and fresh. I don't think he's necessarily qualified as a mayor of a small uh, city in Indiana. Uh, and he's far more liberal than I would ever like anyone to be president of the United States. But he seems like a good enough guy. So I get the appeal. I get the appeal. And he's he's clearly won the first impression, Rose, if this is The Bachelor, with regard to the media. The media has given him the first impression, Rose, of the 2020 Democratic primary process. They're in love with him. They won't tell you why they're in love with him because they don't like to mention that he's gay. That's the most bizarre part of this whole thing. There's elements of the liberal media where they're perfectly fine talking about the fact that Buttigieg is gay, like on Rachel Maddow, who's also gay, because nobody in that audience is going to be offended by it. But in other elements of the media, which is a little bit more mainstream, where there might be people who are offended by it, it's they, they, they play pretend. Let's pretend that Pete's not gay. Let's Let's talk about this amazing out-of-nowhere story that's emerging, but not mention the whole reason for what makes him different, which is he's gay. He's married to a man. In fact, he's talking about having a child with that man. Uh, People, uh, look, is it possible that that could fly if Trump's approval goes in the tank and and the economy goes bad? uh, And, you know, Americans are just so fed up that they'll, much like in 2008, uh, they'll go with Barack Obama. You know, a lot of people are comparing Buttigieg to Obama. There are some comparisons, but there's some differences. There was no mystery about the fact that Barack Obama was black, okay? <laughs> but if Buttigieg gets the nomination with a huge portion of independents not paying attention and not realizing he's gay and married to a man, and then all of a sudden in the general election, they go, what? <laughs> what? What? <laughs> How did work? What? Because there are going to be people who will do that, folks, and they're going to be key voters. So you as Democrats are going to put all your eggs in the basket of a 38-year-old mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who's gay and married to a man. Yeah, good luck with that. Good luck with that, especially when you have other better options to make this a referendum about Donald Trump, which would be a hell of a lot safer if your real goal is to beat Donald Trump. So look, stranger things have happened than Buttigieg to both get the nomination and to beat Trump. I can see that path. But it is incredibly risky. And I do find it uh, pretty hilarious that the media on the liberal side is just basically pretending that this isn't going to be an issue. You know, it's an issue that in the short run will help him. But in a general election, unless it is handled exceedingly well, uh, it will not be helpful and will hurt him in key states like Pennsylvania and Florida. All right. So with with that um, note, uh, let's finish this edition of the podcast with our traditional Reciting of the percentages, again, please, no wagering. The percentages of Trump not finishing his first term in office, I'm going to keep that at 5%, very low, 5% chance that Trump does not finish his first term in office. And I have now placed uh, Donald Trump as a um, a solid, though not significant, favorite, favorite for re-election at 55%, largely because of this kind of delusion, both with regard to the the diminishing of Joe Biden, their best chance of beating Donald Trump, as well as the focus on 
everybody being as woke as possible, this woke Olympics element of the Democratic nominating process for 2020. So that's where we are currently, 5% not to finish the first term, 55% uh, to be reelected. I want to make sure that you remember that episode number 23 of the Individual One podcast will be moved up a day till to Saturday, so just a couple of days from now. So sometime early on Saturday, West Coast time in the United States, we'll be out with a a full review of the redacted Mueller report. So please make sure that you uh, look out for that. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share this show via social media and follow us at Twitter at Individual1Pod. That's Individual1Pod. My name is John Ziegler. Until next time, you're listening to the Global Story Network.